All right, so uh, Chuck, I'm started the countdown to you forming this Swift Swashbucklers podcast. <laughs> This episode is sponsored by Rackspace. Are you looking for a place to host your latest creation? Want terrific support, high performance, all backed by the largest open source cloud? What if you could try it for free? Try out Rackspace at rubyrogues.com slash Rackspace and get a $300 credit over six months. That's $50 per month at rubyrogues.com slash Rackspace. Snap is a hosted CI and continuous delivery service that goes far beyond letting you do continuous deployment. Snap's first-class support for deployment pipelines lets you push any healthy build to multiple environments automatically and on demand. This means with Snap, you can deploy your staging environment today, verify it works, and later deploy the exact same build to production. Snap deploys your application to cloud services like Heroku, DigitalOcean, AWS, and many, many more. You can also use Snap to push your gems to RubyGems. Best of all, setting up your build is simple and intuitive. Try Snap free for 30 days. Sign up at snapci.com slash rubyrogues. Hey everybody and welcome to episode 160 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel we have James Edward Gray. Avdi, will you marry me? Avdi Grimm? Yes, yes, a thousand times yes. <laughs> David Brady? Oh. I've had so much caffeine and Ritalin that I'm actually calling from the future. And Chuck, I saw, I'm sorry I screwed up your intro. Uh, Saranya Bark. There so- you go, you said my name right. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv and we have two guests this oh, week. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> Once again, Scrooge, David Brady. Scrooge McDuck. David Brady just, just lost his marbles. Sam Livingston Gray. Uh, yes, it's a fine morning to be joining you all on the Ruby Brogues. No, it's not. Are you listening to this intro? <laughs> and Glenn Vanderberg. I'm Glenn Vanderberg. And I'm just here to keep an eye on Sam because he works for me. <laughs> ah, I see how it is. <laughs> hey, with that start, this episode's got a really low bar. Okay. <laughs> the pollen is attacking my eyes and my brain. Ouch. Okay, I seven. saw that X-Files episode. <laughs> <laughs> with seven panelists, we are going for quali- quantity over quality. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> We're trying to get all the biases we can in one show. Hey, my Skype only shows, shows six of you. <laughs> <laughs> Off by one errors. <laughs> Couldn't Ouch. help it, sorry. All right, so we are gathered here today to discuss Sam. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have a eulogy prepared. Or more specifically, what I thought Sam this was has his, been up to. I thought this was his intervention. <laughs> oh. We've brought you here to confront you. <laughs> have I been being too awesome again? Too awesome. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. It's offensive. That's exactly what we were thinking. All right. So, Sam, you gave a RailsConf talk. Yeah, I did. So, yeah, for the second year in a row, I actually submitted a talk to RailsConf that had absolutely nothing to do with Rails. And for the first year in a row, they actually took it. So, yeah, it was this talk about things we can do with our brains. And it was actually inspired by uh, a bit from episode 77 of this very show where Glenn was on. And he sort of made a side comment about all of the things that uh, experienced programmers do to... Uh, wrangle different parts of their brain into processing the weird abstract things that we work with. Oh, and yeah, that's, that's sort of, right. That's why I'm really here. Yeah, and so that, <laughs> that bounced high, around in my brain. and yeah. Highly recursive episode. <laughs> right. I'm also, I may also refer to the uh, book club with Tom Stewart as well. So Dang it. Now we've got to get Tom on the line. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it'll give us, give us a chance to redo the intro, so 
It's not all bad. He he really is calling from the future, though, in Great Britain. That's true. He is in the future. Tom lives in the future. That's why he's so much cooler than the rest of us. So what was Glenn's comment that led to all of this? So uh, I'm going to quote Glenn, uh, you at you, Glenn. Uh, you said something like, uh, the best programmers you know all have some good techniques for conceptualing or modeling programs that they work with. Uh, and it tends to be a sort of spatial visual model, but not always. Um, you said what's happening is that our brains are geared towards the physical world and dealing with our senses and integrating that sensory input. Uh, but the work we do as programmers is all abstract. And what you said was, it makes perfect sense that you would want to find techniques to rope the physical sensory parts of your brain into this task of dealing with abstractions, but we don't ever teach anybody how to do that, or even that they should do that. And right. uh, that last bit was really what got me thinking about it, because I'd been going up to uh, Ada Academy once or twice to uh, be a guest instructor there, and I was thinking about how to condense the stuff that I've learned in and sort of pass it on to my uh, younger self or uh, other people who are in that same position. And that was the episode where we were talking about this talk I gave at Gogaruko about dealing with complexity. And I kind of threw that in there. And it's something I've been thinking about for a long time. Dave Thomas and I did a kind of embryonic tutorial about it in 2002. And at Lone Star RubyConf five years ago, I gave this talk called Programming Intuition. But it was kind of nice that I made that comment on on Ruby Rogues the last time I was on because Sam latched onto it and it kind of surfaced us to each other as people who've been thinking about this weird thing for a long time. And he was able to take it in a a direction and I think make it a a lot more comprehensible and, and applicable than anything I'd been able to do in the past 10 years. So I really enjoyed watching Sam's talk and learning from it. I just want to jump in here because when Sam explained this as part of his talk, I I felt like I kind of leveled up because a lot of times I'm sitting at my computer and I'm working on some problem and, you know, it does occur to me, oh, well, I guess I could go model this on the whiteboard or, you know, create some kind of mental model that is, you know, kind of the spatial, you know, model. And, you know, I sit here for a minute and go, "Ah, I don't need to do that. But realizing that that could actually help me harness another part of my brain Uh and pull it in on solving the problem, it was like, oh... Maybe I should do that when I kind of get that feeling of this would help. Well, the the thing is, it doesn't have to be something that you go and do with your senses, right? Mm-hmm. But I think most of us visualize or, or have some sort of mental model, whether it's spatial or not, while we're thinking about our code. And especially when we're thinking about the dynamic runtime behavior of a system as opposed to just the static you know, characters in our text editor or whatever. When we're talking about this, I always think of um, musicians. I heard once that, that the higher you go in music, the more you try to involve all of your senses uh, when playing. And I feel like when I'm watching great musicians, I can almost see this, like they're, you know, swaying to the music, they have their eyes closed, like they're seeing something I don't see, et cetera, that, that they're, they're fully engaged in the thing that they're doing by employing all of the senses and all of their thinking toward that end. Yeah, that reminds me actually of a musician, uh, Imogen Heap, who uh, she does a lot of interesting electronic music, and she's been developing for the past few years this wearable electronic rig with these, you know, bend uh, flex sensors in her uh, jacket, and she's got gloves that can do gesture detection, and she actually makes music by moving her body, which is really cool. Cool. That's interesting. Yeah, I I want her rig. (laughs) (laughs) 
You know, I, I really like that quote, especially because you bring it back at the very end, Sam, when you say that we should be teaching people how to do this and um, and even that they should. How do you begin that process? Do you kind of have to do that at the very beginning of learning to code? Is it better to do it once you're more comfortable? How do you begin teaching people that they should use physical and sensory parts um, when dealing with abstraction? That's a great question. That is a really interesting question. I think that it probably... Like, I, I actually don't know a good way of, of starting absolutely from scratch, but it, it seems to me that some of these things you might not want necessarily to introduce right away because as a beginner, you're already overwhelmed with a whole bunch of stuff. And it seems like you have to be able to integrate and internalize at least some of these concepts before you can really uh, start grasping for more and figure out how to use them even more efficiently. I totally agree with that. When I read, um, when I read Pudor, I learned it, or I read it after, you know, I went to the Flatiron School. And I think that if I had read that from the very beginning, which a lot of people did, it would have meant nothing to me. Mm-hmm. Cause I wouldn't have been able to appreciate those, you know, preliminary concepts to even know what designing code even meant. So I totally agree with that. Yeah. Well, that leads to an interesting point about working memory and this concept of chunking, especially. Is, uh, everybody familiar with this already? James, I'm guessing you probably know it. Yeah. Let's, let's, yeah. Let's define it just for fun. Yeah, I I've feel been like I should. Lot, know, someone. But <laughs> go ahead, Sam. Okay. So, uh, chunking is this idea of taking a complex thought and condensing it down into a single thing. Um, it's highly related to working memory, which is the idea that you can have. Most people can hold in their heads seven plus or minus two discrete thoughts, um, which is why phone numbers are usually seven digits long. But uh, chunking is. This idea that you can take discrete things and combine them together into a single thing. So, like, if you ask me to remember the, the number sequence 853, um, I'm going to remember it as three separate things. But if you ask me to remember 916, I'm going to remember, remember that as, oh, that's the area code where I grew up. And so I think that when you're learning to program, you're trying to hold all of these separate concepts in your head at once, and it overwhelms your working memory very quickly. But as you become more experienced, your brain builds these structures that mirror the structures in the code, and you are able eventually to look at it and just go, oh, okay, so that's a class that does these three things, that's a pattern, that's, you know, one concept, and now I can look at a bunch of other stuff and hold more stuff in my head at once. You know so much about biology and psychology, where does that come from? We'll see Wikipedia. I was hoping he was going to say a troubled childhood, but you know. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I find it interesting. A couple of years ago, I read this book called uh, The Brain That Changes Itself, which was about mostly about neuroplasticity. But um, I also honestly learned a bunch of uh, interesting stuff from the episode called How to Learn, right? Um, which was probably my favorite Ruby Rogues episode ever. Mm-hmm. To me, it sounded like a little like patterns that, you know, one of the value of patterns is instead of having to think of these as these three separate classes that do three separate things, once I know the pattern and the name for it, then I can just refer to them as that name, right? Right. So yeah, exactly. Mental, mental shortcut, basically. And Sam mentioned something about that in his talk about cognitive biases and, and how uh, it's useful to understand the names for those things because it, it and just knowing the name helps us to think about them and recognize them and be able to talk about them and, and things like that. And in some ways, I guess that's a manifestation of the same kind of, of uh, mental mechanism that you're taking something that's kind of abstract and vague and giving it something concrete to hang on to. Right. 
So, so I was thinking about the the question of how do you teach this or how do, how do you start teaching it? And I, I made a point of saying in that thing that Sam quoted that part of the goal is that we should just teach that you should, right? And because I, I think everybody ends up working out their own way of modeling software that fits their brain and the way they think. We can talk about examples and the way we do it. And I think that'd be really useful in general to talk more about how we visualize software, but maybe also try to get students talking about the way they model other abstract concepts outside of programming. I think, you know, a facility with that kind of thing is probably one of the reasons that musicians tend to make good programmers because they, they have a, a experience mapping from a kind of abstract 2D notation onto physical concepts and, and bodily motion and things like that. Oh, and yeah. uh, there's a great line from Fred Brooks in the silver anniversary edition of Mythical Man Month, where he's talking about programming aptitude. And um, he, he talks about his favorite interview question. And I would never ask this in an interview because I don't like cryptic trick interview questions. But nevertheless, you. <laughs> nevertheless, it's a really good way to get people thinking about mental models of abstract concepts. He said he likes to ask people who are candidates for programmer jobs, where is next November? And he, nice. he said this this sort of people who are good programmers tend to have a vivid and well, a very elaborate spatial model of the calendar. That blows me away because I re I lifted my right hand and reached yes a little bit forward <laughs> and way out to the right. Yep, and it's different for everybody. And it's different for the time of the year, way out right. to the right, because it's about six months away. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and um, it's a good example that most people, you know, probably not everybody, but most people uh, will be able to relate to. And, and I, you know, I bet if we stop to think about it, we could think of other things like that. But when we're teaching this, what we definitely shouldn't do is start to tie people down into a particular way of mapping this onto the senses. I initially started thinking about this over 10 years ago, spurred by one question, which is, you know, if a picture is worth a thousand words, why does UML suck so badly? <laughs> and one of the reasons is that it nails us down into a particular kind of narrow mapping of the domain onto physical ideas that A, may not be natural to us, and B, isn't rich enough to capture a multi-dimensional complicated piece of software in a lot of cases. Right. Well, what if you're the saying... one thing you want to map of your yeah. current problem, what if there's no UML symbol for that? Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, so it seems to me that the basic problem with UML, which is unified modeling language, is that it's a language and languages both allow certain kinds of thoughts, but they also constrain thoughts in different ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, Glenn, you talked earlier about it's it's so important to have names for some of these patterns and some of these things. And the, there's a dangerous thing that starts to happen here at, at two levels. At the high level, we have the Lesser-Sapper-Whorf hypothesis, which basically right. says the structure of language influences the structure of your thinking. But at a, at a very low level, if I call something, if I say this is the visitor pattern, that's a fairly a fairly neutral term but if i were to give it a name like wasteful iterator all of a sudden this name now has baggage associated with it or if i call it the benevolent iterator 
it has baggage as well. And that tends to, it tends to d- deflect us sometimes. The, the chunking and the tokenization that we do in our mind has a bias to it. Yeah, that's true. And that's one thing I liked about Sam's talk is, is pointing out that these are shortcuts that will help, can help us see and, and understand things, but we always need to check them with, you know, more rational thought. Mm-hmm. Right. And that was really what I was getting at with the whole teaching thing was I started thinking about, yeah, I've always been really excited about a lot of these different techniques that I've discovered or thought that I invented. And I've been really excited to find ways to use them. But in thinking about how to teach other people to use them, I really wanted to make sure to uh, give them a proper sense of caution about here's where they're good and here's where they fall down. So you want to check your work. I think one of the things that's valuable in teaching this stuff, like Glenn's talked about how if we tell you this is the one way to think, then you're just, it's just another box, right? But to me, one of the most valuable things about this kind of thinking is knowing how to break out of the bubble when I'm stuck. And like, so just the simplest trick that I always use for this when I'm really struck, stuck is I reverse it. Whatever process I'm trying to do, I do it Mm -hmm. backwards. And it's amazing. I know that sounds like the stupidest trick ever, but you wouldn't believe because it changes all the rules. And so it's like hitting the reset button in your brain and you have to think it all through again and you'll come at it from different angles because you're going at it the other way. And for me, that's enough to like jog me out of whatever I'm stuck in when I can't think through it and I know there's a way to do it or whatever, just by reversing the process or reversing the data or whatever. It's, it's one trick that helps me get out of that and think about something else. Can you give us an example? Uh, sure. If you want to write a regular expression to put commas in numbers, uh, so like, you know, uh, for a thousand, it would be one comma zero, zero, zero. Mm-hmm. It's crazy hard to think about that regular expression if you attack it from the front of the string. But if you call dot reverse on the string before you do it, it's a key block. Oh. Super oh, yeah. simple. Nice. Super simple regex. Yeah, so there's an interesting thing you just said, James, about resetting your brain. The name for one of the cognitive biases that I think you're talking about is anchoring or focalism, where you your brain sort of locks in on this one aspect of the problem and then uh, simply discards other information, even though it might be useful. Mm-hmm. Right. And one of the things I didn't put in the talk because I didn't feel I had enough, uh, well, enough time or enough time, enough experience working with it is this, uh, this thing called the oblique strategies card deck. Yes. Yes. Talk about that. So I've known of this thing for a while. It was created by Brian Eno and, uh, Peter Schmidt, apparently. And um, they were musicians, and they they came up with this list of little strategies that they would use to break, you know, creative blocks. And they just had, you know, a deck of things that were, you know, little suggestions like work at a different time scale or emphasize every word in the sentence. And these are just ways of coming at your work differently. Yeah, I actually have been reading the book Drive recently, which talks about where our intrinsic motivation comes from. It recommends, it's, it's probably about the 10th time I've seen it recommended. I think the first place I ran into it was uh, Pragmatic Thinking and Learning from Andy Hunt, I think. But uh, yeah, it too tells you when you're stuck that oblique strategies can be a great way to get you out of the 
thing. I know there's a Mac OS 10 app or, or like a desktop widget or something that you can just click on and get a new one. It's pretty cool. Yeah, Drive is a really good pop. One question I had is in the talk, you talk about how once you have a name for a pattern or, um, or a concept, it's much easier to know what to do with it. And I'm wondering what's a cognitive shortcut that was way easier for you to, to kind of implement once you knew what it was and you didn't have a name for it before? I would say the first one that comes to mind is rubber ducking, which is this idea that you, you know, when you get stuck, you put the keyboard down and you turn to a rubber duck or a stuffed animal or a squishy brain and <laughs> you explain your problem out loud. And when I heard about this practice, I realized that I, I had done this multiple times of like going and interrupting a coworker in the middle of their programming task and being like, hey, can you help me figure this thing out? And like inevitably halfway through, you're like, oh, hey, hold on. And you run back to the keyboard and you fix it, right? Right, right. Yeah. Oh, I do this all the time. Yep. But once I had a name for rubber ducking, then it became a thing that I was more likely to try first before I interrupted somebody else. You know what's funny is I think that the idea of talking to inanimate object is just absolutely ridiculous, but I have no problems talking to myself just for hours. So <laughs> I'll have to move that on to So just make the inanimate object an extension of your ego and you're fine, right? There you go. And I'll call it Saran. There you go. I have a coworker who frequently signs emails and code commits as, you know, Don and Mocha and... <laughs> Mocha is his dog. <laughs> and, uh, nice. Mocha, Mocha has two jobs. Job one is to listen to him debug, and the other one is to come woof at him every two or three hours and say, hey, I need to go outside and go for a walk. And so he gives her credit to you know him thinking and moving and, and getting stuff done. While we're talking about rubber ducking, I want to talk about one expansion of it I've found super helpful. It's great to talk to an animate object, touch yourself, talk to the programmer next door. It's also really great to talk to someone who is none of those things, mm -hmm. like your mom or whatever that has no context. Because when you find yourself in that conversation, you will have to lift yourself up out of the context you're stuck in and explain things on a higher level. So you'll be like, so I'm trying to figure out this algorithm, which, and I, and then you have to explain it in terms someone else who doesn't have your experience would understand. And in doing that, you're automatically pushing yourself out of that rut, right? I, I, I find that I'm, I'm kind of rude when I do that with my wife, because in the middle of it, I'll be, I'm like, hang on, I'll be right back. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've totally done that before. <laughs> yeah. I used to do this with my mom all the time, and she's such a great sport about it because she has no idea what I'm talking about, but she right. can tell from my inflection that something good or something bad happened. So I'll explain <laughs> her this complex thing, and she's like, oh, no, Saron, how did that? And then I'll say something good, and she's like, oh, good for you. And she has no idea what's going on, but she still plays along. It's really helpful. Yep. Yeah, it, it, Chuck, you, you think it's rude, but if my wife is any judge, it's actually a kindness. When, you, when you're like, oh, hey, I, I figured it out, I gotta go. And she's like, finally. It's like free entertainment too, right? The problem for me is my wife has done it for so long that now she has enough of my context. I need somebody who, who doesn't have it anymore. You know, it's like she can figure yeah. out what I'm talking about now. She got all caught up. Uh -huh. That's right. Yeah. 
that process, like the name that I have in my head for what you just described, James, is is uh, when somebody asks me a question and I sort of like stop and my like my whole body freezes and I get the thousand yard stare. I'm building the dependency tree in my head for all the things I need to explain in order to be able to explain something. Or like if you've played, you know, StarCraft, it's like the tech tree. You need this in order to get that, which gets you the other thing. Yeah, that's a good point. I've never thought of it as a tech tree before. I actually love that analogy. Civ mm-hmm. will never be the same for me again. <laughs> um, what, are the, yeah. the, one of the things that related to that, one of the things that I found most interesting in your talk, and it reminded me of one of, one of my favorite sci-fi books, uh, Blindsight by Peter Watts. Um, Which I did read. Thank you. Oh, did I recommend that? To, I recommend that to everyone. You did, yeah. I? Yeah, one of the things you mentioned that, that is also gets mentioned there is, I don't remember how the word is pronounced, uh, saccades or something like that. Yeah, that's it, saccades. Basically, the fact that your eyes are sampling, and they're sampling kind of slowly. We think about seeing the world as, you know, this consistent feed of information for, through our, our eyes, but... Right. We, uh, we think we see in high def, basically. Right, but we don't. We're really just as well as spatially. We're stitching together some some pretty lousy samples. And the the thing I found, actually, maybe you can ex- describe it. If you could describe what happens when you look around. Oh, yeah. Saccades? Yeah, saccades. So a saccade is the uh, technical name for the rapid eye movement that your eye makes when it's moving from one angle to another. And uh, I think at some point it must have been thought that the brain, that the eye actually stopped transmitting information to the brain during a saccade, but it doesn't. It just keeps sending data. But you know, like what happens with a camera when you pan too fast is you just get a smeary blur. And so your brain actually edits that part out. And this is the part that I thought was really interesting that they went into a little bit in, uh, in Blindsight was that your brain actually coordinates with itself. So before you even start sending the impulses to your eye to move in a different direction, your brain also prepares itself to start filtering out the, in- the information that the eye is sending. So your brain, your eye starts to move and your brain says, okay, cut video. And we're just going to maintain the image of the scene as we last saw it. And then when the eye gets there, we're going to turn video back on again and we're going to start seeing things again. So effectively, you're blind when you're moving your gaze around. Which just blows me away because, you know, if you can't actually believe in something as basic as sight, it really throws anything more subjective even more into question. Yeah, right? It's, we always like to think that our reality is just a, a recording, that, that our brain is yeah. just a little recorder sitting in our head. And we don't like to think about the truth, which is that our reality is always constructed. Yeah. And that's one of the things that has me yelling at the television when I'm watching Sherlock, for example, right, is that there are several (laughs) plot points that hinge on his ability to, like, recall everything he's ever seen, which just our brains don't do. Right. (laughs) It doesn't doesn't work very well. Yeah. There there are peculiar people who have astonishing amounts of accidental recall. That's true. Yes. Um, Eidetic memory. Yeah. And eidetic memory, if you sat down and stared at my desk and saw how messy it was, there's just not enough RAM in your brain to store everything that's on my desk. But somebody who's eidetic would store an astonishing amount of detail compared to me. I'm going to store seven or eight things that I can chunk together and then I'm done. You know what drives me crazy about saccades is when you're watching a movie and they zoom in on that person's face and they catch them at just the right angle that you can see their eyes bouncing back and forth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Drives me crazy. I actually, coming from the video game world, 
I love saccades because if you look at a video game from like 2003, 2000, Y2K, that type of era, all of the video game characters, their faces are just, it's just a bitmap. So their eyes are just painted on a block of wood, basically. And they have dead staring doll eyes. And as games got more complicated and we had more 3D rendering, we started having individual rendering for eyeballs. <laughs> Programmers didn't move the eyeballs. They just told the eyes to look at the target. And so everyone had this really hyper intense you can see this in video games from like 2002, 2003. Everyone stares really intensely at everything. That's and, fun. And then you look at a game from like 2009, 2010, and they've introduced saccades and they've studied them very carefully. There's an acting trick that this is what's called the love triangle, I think is what they call it. And it's the, it's from the corners of your mouth up to the, the bridge of your nose that forms kind of a triangle. And if you are in love with somebody and you're gazing into their, their eyes, you will look at their eyes and then you will look down into that triangle somewhere. You look at their nose, you look at their lips, you look back at their eyes, you look back at their nose, you look at their eyes, you look back down at their lips. And this look down, look up, look down, look up. It's actually a strong emotional cue. It's a thing that you can transmit and evoke empathy in observers. And they're sticking it in video games to trick us. It's awesome. That's wow. hilarious. Nice. Harking back to saccades, Sam, there was a slide in there that absolutely terrified me. We, we've talked about the fact that the brain is hiding the evidence of these saccades, <laughs> but yeah. you had this slide that, that goes even more meta than that, which is that the brain hides the evidence that evidence has been hidden. I loved that quote. That was so like, you know, put that in your tinfoil hat and smoke it, right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the, the full quote was, uh, so psychotic masking is the process where, where the brain edits out uh, the smeary blur that happens when you move your, your gaze around. And the quote what reads, uh, due to psychotic masking, the eye brain system not only hides the eye movements from the individual, but also hides the evidence that anything has been hidden. <laughs> I love that. That's awesome. Right. Yeah. right. So it's not like you, you get like a, you know, you think you see a blank space. You think you see a continuous scene. Yeah, you think you're seeing the room around you as a real thing, as a contiguous, full-color, three-dimensional, and it's just... You think that's air you're breathing, Neo? Yeah, exactly! <laughs> Thank exactly. you. Which I believe I said last time brain I has to go. <laughs> I feel sorry for any listener who actually trusted their brain before listening to this episode. <laughs> and it's interesting... Because as as programmers, we're surrounded by models, right? I mean, mm-hmm. honestly, I mean, that's one of the most helpful things that that we can do for e- each other as programmers, because a lot of the stuff that we work with, it's a sort of, I mean, computers, the way they work are, is kind of an unintuitive pile of mashed potatoes. And, you know, what a lot of programming languages do and, and programming paradigms do is they overlay a model that just doesn't exist. I mean, a successful object-oriented programming language is one that has a very internally self-consistent, you know, model of, of working with software as objects. Uh, so, you know, we can, we can build, sort of keep that model of the objects in our heads and we can see them as little, little black boxes sending messages to each other. And, you know, if it's, if it's a good language, you know, it won't break down. It won't have things where it's like, oh, that the model broke down, but it basically, it lets you forget that there's a Turing machine down there somewhere. Right. But what that says is that a good model, uh, you know, a good language, is just the most effective language at, at, at lying to us about what's, what's really going on because, you know, that's not, not what, how the machine works at all. 
You know, it might be how separate systems communicating with each other work more or less, although there are some oversimplifications there as well, but it doesn't reflect the reality of CPUs at all. And so it can constrain us. This is partly related to something that Sam talked about. You know, he, he talked about a kind of cognitive bias uh, in, in part three of his talk when he's, he's talking about that nifty hack about modeling Pac-Man in terms of uh, the ghosts zeroing in on Pac-Man's smell. Spoiler alert! Sorry. Right. Um, <laughs> it was so good, though. Oh, yeah, it's great. We are going to talk about this. It's very important. Oh, yes. It's great. But you know, at the start of that, he, he said, you know, this is something that I never would have thought of because we have a bias against thinking about these kinds of solutions. And Sam, you, you said, I, I wish I had a name for this bias. And yeah. it seems to me to be related to what Avdi was talking about. It, there, we have a bias towards kind of mechanistic, straight-ahead procedural thinking, a la the way the computers actually work under the covers. And we tend to um, think of heuristics and shortcuts as cheating somehow, and that's not as good, right? That's something you resort to if you can't figure out how to do the exhaustive procedural algorithmic solution, then okay, we'll try guesswork or, or things like that. And I, I was thinking about that when we were talking about the ways in which our brain lies to us and, and how we distrust that, and we distrust it because our brain is using heuristics and shortcuts to help us solve a basically intractable problem of perceiving every instant of every thing about the world around us, you know? Ooh, I love that example you just gave because you talked about how we distrust the heuristics and stuff that are applied. But as a person who is both a chestnut and a programmer, I was really interested when Kasparov would go head to head with Deep Blue. And, you know, the first time Kasparov beat Deep Blue, and that was basically heuristics versus raw algorithm with ridiculous right. processing power, right? Yep. And just using his simple instincts that he's developed over the year, he was way smarter than that machine. So they went back to the drawing board and threw everything they had to get it and then some and leveled it up even more and then came back. And when it finally beat him as a chess-loving programmer watching on I have never been more unimpressed in my entire life. You know, mm-hmm. like, look at what you had to do to beat this guy, you know. Right, and, yeah. And yeah. it was such an unimpressive thing to me. And, well, uh, that leads into uh, an interesting story that I really wanted to open this talk with, but I had to throw it out. But last year at a conference here in Portland called Open Source Bridge, I went to a talk by uh, Marcus Roberts, and he had this wonderful analogy. He was talking about computers just in the last 10 years or so have actually started being able to beat humans at the game of Go. And they they do so using these basically Monte Carlo techniques. And uh, for the listeners who aren't familiar with it, Monte Carlo basically means we used a random number generator. And Marcus, in his talk, he told this wonder, he gave this wonderful analogy of comparing the amount of power that the human brain uses to the amount of power that is consumed by the supercomputers that are able to beat humans at Go. He likened it to building a big cube out of wood and uh, chicken wire 20 meters on a side, filling it with golf balls and uh, putting some TNT at the bottom. And so when you want to go play a round of golf, you you construct one of these things and and you go hide uh, and then you push the button. (laughs) And when all the smoke clears, you know, and all the golf balls have distributed themselves across the environment, you walk over to the hole. 
<laughs> you walk over to the hole and you, you find the one that, that went in and you, you point to it and you go, oh, oh, that one, that's my ball. <laughs> As an avid golfer, I'm going to have to try that. Yeah. <laughs> Send me video. As an avid enthusiast of explosions, I'm with you. <laughs> Send me video. I like that comment that Avdi, you were talking about looking for language as a as a way to to build a lie over the top of the machine. And yeah. I'm having this epiphany of I, I'm loving the fact that programming is ultimately an unending quest for a more convenient lie. Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, yesterday for some reason I tried to read some OAuth documentation. I tried to understand OAuth again. And every time I try to do this, I fail. My brain just shuts down instantly. But it occurred to me as I was thinking about why my brain shuts down when I study this one thing, because I don't think, I honestly don't think that OAuth is like unnecessarily complex for what it's doing. I mean, there is some complexity to, some essential complexity to what it's doing. The, the problem is it has no model. Like I have never seen it stated in a way that like fell into place as a model of an interaction that I could see in my head. It just has a bunch of stuff. It just has a bunch of like rules, you know, and, and, and that was really a problem with it. So, you know, I don't want to say this, this, you know, building a lie thing is a bad thing. I mean, we need these models to understand mm-hmm. things. I'm trying to think of a good example of something that does have a model. I mean, one thing I can think of is like Git. I mean, I've seen many different explanations of Git, but there are some good ones out there where the Jam Wyrick explanation is and, and uh and Sam's think like a Git. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, that too. You know, that do give you a mental model to think of. And it's like, oh, okay, once I have that model in my head, things start to make more sense. And I don't have a model for OAuth and nobody's ever offered me one, at least in any of the material I've seen. And so it's just, you know, this big load of information without uh, a way for me to organize it in my head. Do you think that a UML sequence diagram might help? Maybe, maybe not. I'm not sure. I feel like there's probably a better visualization than that out there, but it You're... it probably wouldn't hurt. <laughs> Back in the right. 80s, when MIT designed the Kerberos authentication system, one of the documents they published was a dialogue between two programmers that basically reenacted in dialogue form the design process of Kerberos with mm. one kind of enthusiastic but a bit naive programmer saying, I'm going to design an authentication mechanism. Here's how it'll work. And then this curmudgeonly older guy, you know, poking holes in it and telling him how he would attack that thing and oh okay well i'll i'll improve it by adding this or that and seal it against that attack and i found it very effective for understanding why that protocol was the way it was that makes a lot of sense you know i i i sarcastically tweeted during this process this tweet where i said oh client must present server with a token server will return a cookie give the cookie to the monkey the yes, monkey will good. lead you to a map <laughs> um, yeah loved it and, <laughs> Which is sort of my, my interpretation, uh, you know, of the docs that I was reading. But as I was thinking about that more, I realized that if somebody actually wrote a little text adventure game, um, <laughs> that stepped me through that, the process in those anthropomorphic terms, I would probably finally understand OAuth. You are in a maze of twisty little shaw codes all alike. <laughs> So Sam, one thing that yeah, you talk about near the end of the of the talk is the importance of bias and how to kind of battle your biases. And I remember you mentioned that one of the ways that kind of helps you with that is having a diverse team that has different experiences and different yeah. backgrounds and kind of approach things differently. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. 
Yeah, I think just the real value of diversity is not, you know, so much for ticking a box so that you can say you're diverse and people will stop yelling at you. It's the real reason to have a diverse team is that you have different people with different perspectives. You know, people with different backgrounds have different things that are easy for them that might be hard for others. And so that lets you both get creative solutions to problems and also to avoid, you know, blunders that might have been obvious to somebody who says, oh, yeah, you don't have any women in your slides, for example. I was pairing yesterday with a, a teammate of mine, Tom Kiefhopper, who's one of the Hungry Academy graduates. And I was sort of like railroading us through this solution. And he stopped and he asked what he may have thought was a, re a really dumb question. And I stopped and I was like, oh, yeah, you're right. That would be a much simpler way of doing it. And yeah. You know, it's important to note that before Hungry Academy, Tom was in video production. Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't want to give the impression that Tom is in any way dumb. He's a phenomenal no, 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 developer. Yeah. He's great to work with. For sure. And But, you know, when we say diverse team and things like that, you know, these days people immediately tend to jump to uh, gender and racial diversity, which is great. But it also applies just to general diversity of background. And, and um, I, I like the fact that on our team, we have a lot of people who were musicians. And through Hungry Academy, we have a lot of people who started in a different career and then have brought that over to programming and people who can apply experiences from art or other kinds of sciences or medicine or video production or, or things like that can bring a lot of interesting perspectives to things. Well, yeah, and I, I once worked with somebody who um, had, at the time he was working, I think, on a PhD in quantum computing, and I think he's got it now, had done some wonderful, like, really complicated chip design stuff at Intel. Um, but when I first met him, he'd never used a relational database. And so we were able to see things differently and come at things from very different angles. And I, if nothing else, it helped me to understand a lot of the assumptions that I had been making because I'd internalized them years before. And yeah, it was, it was really fun to just to work with the guy. He was like this really sweet person to work with. I, I would say that's some of the value of like working with junior programmers. Um, yeah. And uh, is that, you know, sometimes I'll be doing something in my head and uh, I'll explain sort of, you know, skipping several layers. And uh, if you're working with a good junior programmer, they're like, hey, wait, whoa, back up. <laughs> you know, what did you do at this level? What did you do at this level? How did you skip all the way to that level? And I find that it usually improves the design when they do that because I am skipping steps. You Absolutely. Know, yeah. Yep, for sure. Well, and, the, and, the you know, Saran, you talked earlier, you, you asked Sam about, you know, how do you learn so much about brains? And I, I think all of this is one reason that as programmers, we ought to try to read nonfiction stuff that's outside of our field of expertise. Because mm -hmm. yeah, every time I do, I learn stuff about my own field. Great. Yep. All right. We've all been good long enough. I want Pac-Man. That's it. <laughs> I, I, I want to work with some people who know what Pac-Man smells like. I've waited and waited, <laughs> and we have not talked about Batman. Here's a quarter, kid. Go buy yourself a video game. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, am I the only one ignore or that noticed this amazing example at the end of the slides? That was I, cool. Oh, I no. Actually, I actually have a question about that. And, you know, if you, if you want the example, I, I think you probably ought to go watch the talk because I think it illustrates it well. But here's my question. So you start out, and you kind of give the approach that I totally would have taken, by the way. And then you yeah, said, me too. you said, is, is this solution biased? And then you said, um, no, no, Chuck, this is important. I said, how is this solution biased? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there you go. And that is the most important question in the, in the talk, I think. 
Yeah, right. and I still don't have a good answer for it. So I want to hear what yours is. For how that particular solution is biased? Yes. The initial one? Yes. Okay. Well, that's the thing that I said I didn't have a good name for, right? But well, maybe should you I have a good longer answer for? I'm should I TLDR the example for the for Please the listeners? Do. Okay. So just very, very, very quickly, the idea is that if you're programming Pac-Man, you have to figure out a way to write the ghost to AI in a way that's going to be challenging and interesting for the human player. And uh, when you ask programmers to to make the ghosts chase the Pac-Man, uh, they put themselves mentally in the place of the ghost and they figure out how they would solve that problem. And they, they wind up encoding a lot of rules in the ghost itself. Um, where the ghost might ask the maze where things are, and then like it will figure out its way through the maze to get to the Pac-Man. And I went to this presentation at Uppsala, which is a conference uh, of the ACM, and uh, Professor Alex Repenning gave this talk where he described this thing that basically turns that entire problem on its head, which is that you give the Pac-Man a smell, and you use a diffusion model to radiate that smell out through the environment, and then the ghosts basically just have to follow their nose. So the, to describe it in the, you know, just crazy simple terms, if Pac-Man's standing on a square, we say that square's, you know, 100 or whatever, then we mark every square around it 50, right? And then every square yeah. around that 25, whatever. And then a ghost at any given point can look at the number under his foot and move to the next bigger number. And by yep. doing so, he's chasing Pac-Man in like a crazy hyper intelligent way, such that if there were multiple ghosts, as long as you have ghosts zero out the number underneath them so it doesn't radiate out, and Pac-Man goes into a tunnel that has like two exits, one ghost would go in one, and then that would stop the smell pattern, so then the other ghost would navigate around to the other one, and they will look like they're intelligently closing him in and attacking Batman. It's super cool. you got to see it. Yeah, where the most complicated thing each ghost is doing is comparing four numbers and picking the biggest one, right? At right. most, four numbers. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's, it's almost like a first-person bias. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Probably there are at least half a dozen cognitive biases that play into this. But the two that come to mind immediately, which, by the way, is called the availability heuristic. Actually, I might have mislabeled that. Anyway, one that comes to mind is this idea of anchoring, which I mentioned earlier, which is this idea that once you uh, once you settle in on something, your brain fixates on it. And I had this line in the slide that uh, I said, like, names have gravity and metaphors can be tar pits. And that's what I was getting at was this idea that once your brain, like, labels something and chunks it, it doesn't think about it again. That's the entire point of chunking. The other one that comes to mind is this this uh, other bias that its name is functional fixedness. Um, this is the idea that people have a sometimes have a hard time using objects in ways other than the way they're intended. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you have a hammer and you need a paperweight, do you think to put the hammer on the paper? And uh, I see that as one of the key insights in the, that I got out of this, uh, seeing this presentation about Pac-Man so many years ago, is just this idea that when we, as programmers, put ourselves in that model that we've constructed, when we imagine ourselves in a maze, uh, we are biased to think of the actors in that scenario. We think of the Pac-Man as moving around, and we think of ourselves as moving around. Literally, what we don't see is the air between us and our target, and that the environment can also be modeled and it can be used to shift things around. The computer doesn't care how you get the job done, um, but our limited brains don't necessarily think of that. And 
you know, that again, I think is, it's highly related to functional fixedness. I think there might be a couple of other things going on too. One is that smell is about the weakest of our senses and, and, you know, unlike with dogs, it's not directional. Yeah. So we don't, we tend not to think of it that way. But the, the big one I see is that we have a hard time grasping the idea of emergent behavior from simple rules. Yeah. 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 We can see it when it happens, but we have a hard time setting it up. Right? Well, and we distrust it even when it does happen. That's true. Yeah. Is that perhaps, again, related to our, our bias as programmers, especially those of us who have like a CS educational background, to wanting to solve the entire problem yeah, yeah. all at I, once? I, yes, very yeah. much so. We have a distrust of heuristics and things that seem like partial solutions that usually work as opposed to the provably complete entire problem solution. Which and 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 that's something that we is drilled into us when we're in computer science classes, right? Is yeah, you, know, you have to remember to test for all the edge cases and things like that and, and solve the problem. So a heuristic solution tends to be looked down upon. Yeah, I was just saying what Glenn isn't saying is that he's done uh, at least one excellent talk on the topic of heuristic solutions. Right. Well, yeah, that's actually the talk that I was on Ruby Rogues before. Uh, oh, right. Yeah. 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 You're absolutely right. I mean, there are things I don't usually think about. Like, I'm thinking, how do I handle this ha case? How do I handle this case? It only happens like once a month, but I need to handle it. And the thing that doesn't occur to me is 